0: This is The Professor's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring business and legal issues prevalent in today's private equity industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner, Jeff Cockrell, as he and specialists share real world insight to help enhance your knowledge.
1: Thank you for joining another episode of The Corner Series, our podcast where we bring together dealmakers and thought leaders at the intersection of healthcare and private equity and try to do deeper dives into more specific topics. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by my colleague, Kayla Marty, one of the real up-and-comers in the legal world of healthcare and and specifically the intersection of healthcare and private equity. Kayla works on uh, matters from in a lot of different sectors, but she's really cultivated an expertise in uh, women's health investing, uh, which covers a broad array of things. Kayla, thanks for joining. And maybe to start us off, can you talk a little bit about how you would segment the women's health investing market?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Chad. Thanks for having me. I think that when we think about women's health, many people classify the market as women's health, fertility, and then other ancillary businesses that support women's health and fertility businesses. So maybe just to break those down a little bit, uh, many people view women's health as very traditional OBGYN businesses. They often include MFM, or maternal fetal medicine businesses, and laborist programs, but that's really just cracking the surface in the women's health arena. We've seen a real explosion in the fertility market, so uh, different fertility businesses and their associated ancillaries, things like surrogacy matching, egg bank donation, genetic testing, all of those are subsectors of the women's health business. And then we see a lot of women's health adjacent businesses, such as large mammography platforms, both inside the women's health practices, but also as outside ancillary support investments. And then there are some smaller subsectors that focus on women's health surgical issues that really support the gynecological components of the business. Uh, but I think that that's a pretty wide spectrum, and they have a lot of different issues. That affect different ones. I will tell you what I have seen lately is the fertility business is incredibly hot. It is an area that has garnered a lot of investment interest and a lot of interest both at the regulatory and the transactional level.
1: And you, you discussed a number of different subsectors. Do you see usually, and maybe the answer is it's a little bit all over the board, do you usually see businesses as more pure plays within one of those subsectors or do you uh, see a number of them kind of patched together? Uh, how do you see the, the the market looking from that perspective?
2: Yeah, I think it, it breaks down across some of the subparts, some things that you typically see together and others that you don't. So just to break that down a little bit in the pure women's health space and what I mean by that is the pure sort of OBGYN components of women's health, it's fairly common to see genetic testing labs within the practice entities. It's fairly common to see small mammography structures. And then it's very common to see a large laborist program, which effectively is the OBGYNs that support only the hospital-based practices. And then MFM providers, sometimes you will see as part of a pure play OBGYN business, Although, for a variety of different reasons, you often see them separate as well. So, specifically, something to know within the maternal fetal medicine area that I think is widely known in the women's health subsector, but is not widely known among the investment community is the really different reimbursement environment for maternal fetal medicine physicians because they're actually trained as OBGYN providers yet payers across markets tend to pay them at much higher rates due to the very significant and complicated patient base that they have. So sometimes you will see those adjacent to women's health businesses, even if they're not included in them. So that's the women's health side of the house. When you go into fertility, I think it's incredibly common and growing exponentially to see associated egg banks Um, and egg donation structures within the fertility businesses, surrogacy matching, and then obviously sperm banks and sperm matching for uh, expecting parents.
1: In a number of different healthcare sectors, we see different kind of growth models um, where the the theory is that you're either getting kind of uh, payer contracting lifts by better uh, contracting. Uh, Maybe you're internalizing ancillary services uh, maybe you're doing kind of rapid, small tuck-in uh, acquisitions. In some of these women's health sectors, What what is the thesis of a growth model?
2: So there's a, several different ways in which people have been growing from a de novo perspective uh, through acquisition. Other mechanisms are through de novo service line growth. And then also partnership with outside entities, whether it be laboratory companies, hospitals, Or other clinical providers. So, just taking those one by one, by far the most common structure is the acquisition growth that is occurring at a practice by practice level on both fertility businesses and OBGYN businesses. And their growth tends to be in onesie, twosie, uh, small physician acquisitions because the market remains extremely fragmented. And it tends to be very difficult to grow solely by major acquisitions. And so you see a very common structure where, like other subspecialties, they may have one large platform acquisition and then have continual add-on acquisitions, which is not unusual for other subspecialties as well. And then you also frequently see structures in which they are developing brand new service lines. So, for example, the latest and greatest service line tends to be genetic testing within the OBGYN platforms and practices. And within that genetic testing structure, in order to really stand up an effective laboratory to provide those services, because the equipment is incredibly expensive, you often have to have 50 to 100 physicians in a regional market that's able to utilize that laboratory in order to get genetic testing really off the ground. To the lesser extent, you have to have a critical mass of physicians in order to support in-office mammography, but you can do that on a bit smaller scale with not as many physicians due to the offerings of different equipment. And that's on the OB side. On the fertility side, we've seen an extreme prevalence of the building of surrogacy matching programs the building of egg freezing and egg donation programs, and then also obviously sperm donation and fertility programs that have been really core to many of the fertility businesses for years. And so those are all things that we've seen being a real growth area uh, for businesses within their own practice. And then separately, we have seen a prevalence of connection with local health systems through their laborist programs because it can be a really great area of referrals and ability to generate ongoing and new business for different OB practices through staffing their laborist departments within health systems.
1: You mentioned that the fertility subsector has been uh, white hot. What has driven kind of the specific uh, increase there? Because we, we see a, a ton of deals in that space and some of these uh, growth thesis of internalizing Uh, ancillary services and other things are prevalent in a lot of different places. What do you think has made it so white hot right now in
2: fertility? Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. I think it is market conditions um, and more, just sheer, more demand. I think it is a greater willingness of payers to reimburse services. And then also a structure in which it's just a very high ancillary high compensated subsector, which makes it attractive for acquisition growth. But there's a couple of things uh, that that go along with each of those topics. So one is demand. It is clear through data about reproduction that more women are utilizing or looking for fertility services in the market. And there's a real shortage of endocrinologists and other fertility-based physicians and so that, in and of itself, I think is driving interest because there's a lot of opportunities just for overall growth in the subsector based on demand. The other thing is what people call mandated and non-mandated states. So states across the country split into a, di- a few different buckets. Some states mandate their insurance provider cover insurance providers cover fertility services. And when they do that, it often has a decrease in overall cost or reimbursement of fertility services, but a sharp increase in volume. And that's a real opportunity in many states for fertility business to capitalize on that change in law, which has been happening in a number of different states around the country, New York included, and probably the most prevalent. And then the last component is just the ability to develop ancillaries. It has some really ripe, untapped ancillaries, things like egg bank donation, like I mentioned earlier, surrogacy matching. All of those things from a regulatory perspective are becoming more common and more supported at the state level, which is offering some additional revenue opportunities that haven't been present in the past because of technological developments and really the law catching up with some of these clinical innovations. And so I think that you see that as just a really attractive area because it is one of the subspecialties that certainly is not stagnating. It's not losing individuals who are utilizing it. And it's really uh, technology is increasing the clinical opportunity.
1: One dynamic that makes uh, some of these areas a little different is a diminished governmental reimbursement. Um, Obviously, Medicare generally focuses on the older community and fertility and OBGYN and other areas focus more on younger women. Given that dynamic, uh, that there's a little bit less government reimbursement and you have a little bit less of some of the regulatory overlay when you don't have that government reimbursement. Still, there are regulatory issues and places where people can get themselves in trouble What are some of the more specific areas from a regulatory compliance perspective or areas where people get in trouble in this sector?
2: Yeah, I think the number one area is glossing over the state law restrictions on ownership and investment and profitability of ancillary investments, specifically in the laboratory space within the fertility world. Even though there is not Medicare reimbursement for fertility services, and for that matter, there's actually no Medicaid reimbursement either in in any state that I'm aware of and only a small amount of TRICARE reimbursement, there are many state laws that apply to commercial and governmental insurers that the commercial insurance component does not allow you to ignore. So on the laboratory structure, which tends to be very prevalent in fertility businesses, I think that often people believe that because there's no governmental reimbursement, that physician ownership in affiliated laboratories, physician ownership in affiliated imaging facilities is is okay or accepted or low risk. And I don't believe that that's the case. I, I believe that many states are becoming very savvy to protecting patients and keeping physicians investments out of healthcare entities that could in any way influence their referrals. And I expect to see a scenario in which state AGs will continue to become more aggressive about these state laws over time, particularly when providers opt out of governmental pay or when their subspecialty does not reimburse governmental pay. The state AGs continue to have a real interest in protecting those patients from a scenario in which a clinician's decision making could be swayed by their financial interests in a laboratory or other ancillary activities, so I think that that's probably the most po- common pitfall around these outside fertility investments or fertility ancillaries at the state law level, even though they aren't reimbursed by government payers.
1: Are there kind of particular structural dynamics that you see in women's health businesses that might be a little different? Whether that's uh, joint venture structures with either health systems or maybe ASC management, ASC management firms. What structural dynamics do you see in these deals?
2: Yeah, I think the most interesting structural dynamic, which is new and innovative, and I've talked to several different clients about is the ability to have a a bundled payment structure where basically take risk on the overall reimbursement in the women's health subsector. And this is usually cabined off into the OBGYN side of women's health, which essentially is OBGYN providers for a lot of years have been taking risk from commercial payers on where they send or where they deliver patients from a hospital perspective. So if you go to hospital A and the cost is $200 and if you go to hospital B and the cost is $250, the payer have been driving them to hospital A and reimbursing them better for taking their cases to hospital A. That's been a longstanding structure in the OBGYN businesses across the country And they've really taken it one step further, which is how can we take risk on the overall continuum of care that the OBGYN drives? So, how do we obtain one bundled rate from a commercial insurer for the entire continuum of care for the patient, which includes hospital stays, anesthesia providers, ultrasounds, and then the professional care? And we've seen a real interest in that area, which is not entirely unique to women's health, but we're really only seeing it in other subsectors like orthopedics, which are very, very different than women's health. And there's been a real interest there both by payers and practices. And I think that that's going to be the next frontier of value based care in the women's health sector is trying to bring in the cost of total continuum of care by preventative care for a woman from day one, when they become pregnant all the way through excellent care when they deliver their baby, and maybe even on into pediatrics. So, I think that that's one of the more interesting components of structures that we see in women's health that we don't necessarily see in other subsectors.
1: As the market uh, continues to develop, who do you think will be the back end buyers of some of these larger uh, platforms? Will it be ever bigger private equity investors? Will it be folks like Optum that are buying lots and lots of things? Who are the back-end buyers of these as they get to scale?
2: Yeah, so I I think that over time that will evolve. But I think as a step one, if you're a mid-sized healthcare, or women's health platform, I think in the immediate stages, it's going to be larger private equity funds. We've seen many of these transactions and almost every one they have a very strong, large private equity fund uh, bid process. So I expect that to be the case. But I also expect to see an immense consolidation among women's health platforms. So for example, you can see in the past several years, uh, Unified has purchased many women's health practices, which include Women's Health USA and others. And I think that trend may be more common than people believe it will be, the consolidations of platforms as a whole. And then in the long term, yes, I think that uh, people like Optum are very common buyers, but I don't think they're going to be the common buyers on at, at this stage in most women's health evolutions. And I do think we'll see some go public. Uh, I really believe that. We've seen that in some other women's health adjacent areas. So for example, progeny, which is a huge... Fertility payer we have seen go public and we've seen many others getting close. And I I think we're going to see some of that as well.
1: Well, it continues to be a very active uh, segment of the market and we certainly expect to see more and more activity. It feels like it's still in the earlier innings of uh, the development of women's health as a a business model. Kayla, thanks a ton for uh, joining in this corner series. Uh, Your insights are always uh, pretty uh, sharp and helpful. Thanks again.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Professor's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.